Everything we know about the media, marketing, and advertising business is being completely upended thanks to technology and data. We're talking with some of the top industry leaders as they steer their companies through constant change. Welcome to Next in Marketing, presented by AppsFlyer. Hey guys, this week we had a very special episode of Next in Marketing. We recorded this live at TechCrunch Disrupt 2020. My guests were Brian Quinn, President and General Manager at AppsFlyer, and Anna Milicevic, Co-Founder and Principal at Sparrow Advisors. We had a lively discussion about the potentially massive impact of Apple's shifting policies regarding advertising. Let's get started. Happy to be here, guys. Let's let's kind of just jump into it. Brian, I think a good place to start is, I think just maybe, t- let's talk about what AppsFlyer is. You play an interesting role in this world and you're, be- you're being affected by a lot of these issues directly. So tell us a little bit about AppsFlyer and who your customers are. Sure. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, Again, my name is Brian Quinn. I'm the president and general manager for AppsFlyer North America. AppsFlyer is a business. We're uh, the global mobile attribution company. Um, We help uh, app businesses with a comprehensive suite of measurement and analytics solutions. So we help uh, perform attribution um, on helping businesses understand where their mobile users are coming from, how they engage. We help them fight fraud and build first party audiences. Uh, We're built with a privacy by design uh, principle. So everything we do has a lot of user privacy and security embedded in it. We have 12,000 customers across the globe and 7,000 integrated uh, partners. So we're very woven into the mobile ecosystem. We've got a thousand employees. We've raised $294 million to date. We did our series D in January led by uh, General Atlantic. We have about 65% uh, market share. And uh, some of our top customers that I can name are Nike, Tinder, Calm, Activision, Blizzard King, uh, Stitch Fix, Best Buy. So uh, big in the gaming and e-commerce space, but also representing uh, apps across every consumer uh, category that you'd see in the app stores. Okay, so let, let's put aside what's going on with Apple or isn't going on. Let's pretend pretend that hasn't and none of that's happened yet. Let's talk about what is your your customer is Nike or your king, your your, part, your gamer. What what do you tell them? You help them figure out what 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 ads drove people to install their app. What 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 ads help them land high paying customers, lifetime customer value. Like what kind of stuff do you tell them or help them with? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a piece of it. I mean, ultimately, um, mobile app is a very competitive ecosystem. And um, there are outside of China's fragmented app store environment, you really have two app stores. You have you know Apple and, and Google Play, and you have millions of consumer apps and they're all vying for our attention. They're vying to be discovered. Um, they need to be re-engaged with. So it's a very competitive ecosystem. And the stores themselves are pretty opaque. It's hard to understand what's working. So we provide mission critical technology that's embedded in the tech stack of the apps themselves with SDKs or integrations into their server environments. And what we do is we help them understand which marketing touch point drove an action. So which media campaign, which marketing campaign drove an action like an install or a purchase or the completion of a level that connection is what attribution is and that's the basis of what we do that's important measurement for brands to understand what's working how to justify their return on investment how to identify cohorts of their best users 
How do we re-engage those users? And that foundation allows us to then accurately decipher what's a real person from a bot so that marketers don't end up purchasing fraudulent traffic or fraudulent installs. We help them to um, identify you know, which audiences are most valuable and then create uh, audiences that they can push to networks to re-engage with and help them understand you know, in measurement around retargeting with incrementality. Um, these are the types of solutions that we offer, primarily performance marketing teams, product growth teams of, of consumer mobile app businesses. Yeah, so that, that was going to be, you kind of led me my, my next question. Are you, are you primarily living in the mobile universe? Because, um, you know, most brands want to have, they will, every brand I think would like to have exact measurement of, or as exact, as exact as they can get on what every dollar I spend and how, do, how it all connects together between TV and at home and mobile apps. That's going to be very different from a game company that's pure, primarily mobile. But are you, sorry, are you trying, do you aspire to be the, the connective tissue for everything a marketer tracks or, or are you really a mobile company first and foremost? So, you know, I think what we do is we, we have a mobile centric, uh, buyer and, and persona that we that we serve. So if you're a, a mobile game and your entire business resides in the app, we're a cr critical part of the infrastructure. Um, and that value is very, very clear uh, to that gamer. Now, increasingly, we're seeing a lot of large businesses, non-mobile first businesses, retailers, travel companies, uh, grocery store companies who are, are recognizing that that um, you know, mobile is the way that their consumers prefer to be engaged with. So there's a, a real rush to build great user experiences on mobile, have mobile become more core part of uh, their assets and their properties. And we're helping these businesses understand the mobile landscape. Who are all the players? What are the partners? How to uh, effectively spend their, their dollars and measure their dollars. So um, effectively, we're helping all, all businesses. And I think, you know, we do aspire to be that, that critical layer in, uh, in a business's stack to, you know, help them grow, provide them transparency, give them the security and the privacy that their consumers want, and navigate all of the uh, changes in the landscape, which there are many, you know, right now. Yeah. And, and we've been hinting at those uh, for a while here. And I want to come back to that thought because I imagine I imagine the conversations you're having with all these um, non-mobile centric brands have accelerated thanks to this this era we're in yeah. COVID and everyone's exactly using e-commerce e mobile more. But let's you hinted at this. It, it is a it is a two app store world. And interestingly enough, one you know, one of the companies is largely is largely built and monetized as an advertising company, Google, yeah. although Android is is different. And then you got Apple, which is has never been in love with advertising. They've had um you know, they've had, they've had an ad business here and there, but they, they seem, they're not a, like a big data collection. They're not a big, they're not a big targeting company. So they're going to have very different outlooks on this. And that kind of came, um, came very clear recently when, when Apple announced they were changing, uh, the rules of, of how you can track, uh, what happens off their apps without, with IDFA. Now that that's changed, but I would love both of you guys to talk about maybe how the philosophical, uh, the philosophies are different and then, what that what that move would mean and not mean, on uh, maybe let's 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 get you jump in here and then we'll get back to Brian. Ooh, I I uh, always love. 
to introduce philosophy in anything mm. mobile yes. app related. But but I think you're spot on with, with that because the, the philosophies of the two app stores are quite different, at least in the messaging that, that they promote to market. Mm. I think economically they're quite aligned in terms of how the app stores themselves monetize. Uh, but but the messaging is that Apple is very privacy and consumer oriented. And I would venture to say that that's predominantly on the messaging side, not so much in reality. <laughs> and that Google, it has a, a, a very different approach. And it's a very, you know, like a full stack uh, approach to everything that they do. I, I think the, the biggest challenge here for, for me and, and for uh, the clients we work with is that, you know, it's a, it's really a, an interesting space when there's only two options and the two options look, you know, 95, 98% the same. Do you really have options? <laughs> right. Yeah. People, uh, people in online advertising complain it's dominated by Facebook and Google, but there is, there's actually at least a whole 15% out there that is available to the market where there's really, it really is a two horse racing there. And that's, and that's that Brian. Okay. So what you, you hear about this Apple thing, Obviously, things have changed in the last few months about whether, how imminent it is or not. But you hear about this. What what goes through your mind, your company? What does this mean for your company? And what do you start hearing from customers when this this topic comes up? Sure. So I think you're referring to iOS 14, uh, which just launched. Yes. Right. Okay. And um, let's be specific. Yeah. yeah. So at WWDC in June, the Apple's developer conference, they they talked about their new operating system, which just launched a couple of days ago to the consumers. Um, and there is a lot there, uh, and particularly there's a lot of enhancements around user privacy, which is very exciting. Um, this is a, a direction that we applaud. If, if consumers feel that their data is, is uh, being protected and is secure, they'll mean more trust in the environment. And this is good for everyone. This is good for consumers. It's good for business. It's good for Apple. It's good for Google. Uh, so we applaud this direction. There's a um, and, and there's there's examples of this um, which are going to be very apparent to consumers right off the bat. So, an app that requires access to one of your photos now no longer needs your entire photo library. Uh, an app that is asking for a particular contact uh, no longer needs every uh, contact in your um, in your contacts in your database, right? And so these are obvious benefits to consumers. Um, very reasonable. Very, so very reasonable. Even even the indicator light, you know, before this operating system, you don't know if Siri's on and, and listening. You don't know if your camera's on. Now there's a simple indicator light. And this is going to be a welcomed change that's going to really drive trust uh, in, in the ecosystem at large. Now, there's a particular element of this, which is not so apparent to uh, users and the consumers here around IDFA and around this new framework uh, called ATT that Apple had, had planned to release, which would um, put the control in the, in the user's uh, hands of whether they would allow IDFA to be sent off of their device to an app. And IDFA is the identifier for advertisers. It's a tool that Apple created um, for specifically for advertising purposes. And that's really, there's been a lot of discussion, at least in, in our industry over the summer around this particular piece, which has now been delayed until early next year. So there's some time here um, that, that this will, uh, that this hasn't launched yet as, as, as it relates to iOS 14, but this is the big change that, I, I, that you're referencing and that a lot of folks in our ecosystem are talking about. 
and, and you know, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and uh, this is kind of a question for both of you. When I when when that when that change was first announced, from what I could observe in the marketing media landscape, you, the people that really intimately understand this world were like, "Oh boy, this is not good. This is going to change everything." But then a lot of marketers were sort of like, "I don't really, I really don't understand what that means. It's too in the weeds. I think it's important. I'm not really sure. I wonder if both of you found that." Anna, maybe you want to jump in first and. Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of folks have almost been inoculated or, uh, against announcements like that, where the announcement seems momentous and like something really big is changing, but then it turns out not to change that much. And I'll, I'll take us back all the way to, you know, with the first time that the, the European Union made us all put those um, cookie warning labels all the way through GDPR, etc. So there have been a lot of high-profile announcements that didn't really pan out to many changes. So now I think for a lot of marketers who aren't necessarily uh, that attuned to these kinds of ecosystem changes, this sounds like something that could just be, you know, one of those announcements that doesn't really require them to change a lot of things. So it's getting harder for marketers to understand what are the things that they should really kind of, hey, this is a big deal. We should do something about right. it right away. We've cried wolf so many times. Exactly. Come on, is this really going to yes. So, so we've, we've definitely seen that kind of like, well, what's the big deal? This is just another freak out type of thing. And then, you know, when you walk through somebody on a, on a whiteboard or on a call, uh, you know, hey, here's how this is relevant to you and your company. That's when you have the, oh, kind of moment usually. Right. And then folks are, are then better equipped to, to handle it. So Brian, from a pure like pure marketing advertising perspective, how I mean, let's say this change happened tomorrow for, uh, with IDFA, how momentous is it or not? Sure. Well, so let, let's first let's first say that this change, which we're talking about, um, IDFA as an identifier becoming much less used if consumers are going to choose to opt out of that. Um, inherently, IDFA is not good or bad. It's a tool. And for, the, for a number of years, it has been one of the main identifiers that the entire ecosystem around mobile has, uh, has, has used and has, has come to trust. And so what I mean by that are um, apps that are, that are running marketing campaigns to acquire new users and engage those users have relied upon IDFA to know for sure that that user saw my ad and, and took an action. And they've built ROI models around this. And a lot of businesses and entrepreneurs and developers have built great content and uh, have built great utilities and entertainment services in apps and have given us those apps for free and they've monetized through advertising. This is how they pay their engineering teams. This is how they finance right. their business. And so those companies are acutely aware that a drastic change to IDFA puts at risk a lot of things. It puts at risk a business model. It puts at risk consumer journeys. It, it puts at risk the consumer experience. And there has to be a lot of reworking within the industry. And those who are close to it, that's, I think, what you're referring to is like, wow, this is pretty big. Now, the, the uh, don't get me wrong, you know, IDFA has been misused. It was originally designed for advertisers, and that's what I'm speaking to here, but there are more nefarious practices and use cases leveraging IDFA. You have businesses um, uh, building rich consumer profiles of users without their knowledge in, and, and, and connecting this to their IDFA. You have companies uh, selling this data to one another 
without the consumer knowing or embedding it in their products and, and ultimately sharing this information without consumers knowing. And I think it's these practices that aren't healthy for the environment. And this is what Apple's trying to stamp out. But what's important is not to combine all the positive healthy use cases with the nefarious ones and throw it all out together and to really decipher what uses of IDFA are beneficial and, and foster growth and transparency uh, and which ones are not. And, and really that's the crux of, uh, of the issue that we are, uh, that we find ourselves in. Okay. So help, let, let's explore the, if, if we got, you know, if we could kill the bad stuff and keep the, but, 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 in, but the side effect is we kill the good reasons for this. Pro what does it look like if I'm a game publisher and I'm trying, I can still advertise and I'll see my downloads go up, I guess, but I won't know how it happened. Is that, is, will it be like sort of just, you'll have a little bit of data and not enough or what would it, what will it look like if you don't have this tool? So sure. So to be clear, IDFA is still uh, going to exist if the user gives consent. Right. Yes. Okay. And so but we think we think lots of people are inclined not to do that, or that's the fear, right? Correct. I think I think the predominant thinking is the way that the choice is planned to be presented to the consumer. It doesn't give them a lot of information of the value of this. It, it it's a pop up that says, "Do you want this app to track you?" across different apps and websites. And, and we believe- right. People are going fast, they're gonna be like, yeah, whatever, no thanks. Right, the way that's that the that's thing. written and the way that the, we're educating consumers on this, most will probably say no. Um, and so if, if, if we say no, then that won't be available to the brand and they'll be working in aggregate data, more anonymized data. Now, this we believe is ultimately the future of this industry to be working in more aggregated anonymous data sets. And uh, it, 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 it should have better privacy implications for consumers. Um, it's being implemented pretty quickly uh, or it had planned to be, and it doesn't give a lot of businesses and tech partners the ability to sort of accommodate. So if it launched out of the gate as is, a couple of things are gonna happen. One, we talked about the business model risk. So a, a developer, an entrepreneur, a company looking at the business model of their app is now going to question, can we be in the business that uh, depends upon monetization of ads? Because I need to have confidence, I understand who's viewing these ads, and I need to be able to connect that to the cost and the, the user acquisition and retention spend to make sense of all this. If I can't do that with any confidence, then I'm questioning the, the model itself. And maybe I need to think about e-commerce or in-app purchases or subscription, which are not the prevailing revenue models. So a lot of innovation and a lot of great uh, value that we're getting today is at risk. On a more tactical level, um, attribution really serves to complete the feedback loop that users give brands. Now, that's not obvious to a consumer, but attribution is what tells the brand that that ad brought value or it didn't. Uh, it's, it's what helps brands know that they're serving the mul you know, multiple of the same ads to the same user, or are they sequencing an ad campaign and telling a story? And so these are big benefits to users that they might not be aware of, of their experience could suffer. More ads that are not relevant because brands can't precisely understand what's working. I'll give you one more example. Um, attribution uh, helps power uh, something called deferred deep linking. And so you might have experienced this, Mike, where you're, you're on a mobile website, you see a promotion for 20% off a pair of sneakers uh, if you download the app and buy that pair of sneakers. So you go to the app store, you open that, 
and it comes right to the page of that sneaker, right to that that purchase page, or right to the page of the right content. And that's a that's a very good user experience with a lot of context that's brought through, as opposed to right. showing. I'm not digging around to find that thing. I'm exactly. not confused. Which yeah. users don't want, brands don't want that as well. But attribution makes that possible. So there's a real argument for a a, a, a a user experience here that's put at risk if we don't have enough time as an industry to develop the capabilities to to to, to give this experience to users. Right. So yeah, it's, it's, it's you're you're kind of you're kind of saying, listen, the world is going this way. Eventually, we don't need to you know, um, track people and hound them with, um, and, and, and have, have the whole world sharing everyone's idea. And that's not where you want to go. We, we need, but we, but we need time to adjust to this kind of thing. For we sure. can't just roll this out overnight. For sure. No, yeah. And interesting here. And I want to riff off of something you said, Brian, that, that's really fascinating. So we've completely failed as an industry to communicate to users uh, the value of advertising and all the cool content and cool experiences that advertising actually enables on, on these devices. And this isn't limited just to mobile experiences. It's uh, something that's very pervasive on the browser side of things where we're having this same conversation that we're having in the mobile universe around IDFAs, but around cookies. So it's always the vehicle that's under attack here rather yes. than the the overarching business model which is you know in a in an era where we have walled gardens who this doesn't affect or doesn't affect to that extent you know advertisers are going to likely find it easier to shift their their dollars to the facebooks and the googles of the world who can provide a, an easy full authenticated path for uh, customers then continue to operate in the open web. And that's a scenario in which we as consumers lose. And this is positioned as something that is good for us, good for our privacy, good for the user experience. And not only is it not, to Brian's point, it's going to be really painful in the short term uh, experience wise for, for the vast majority of consumers. So I always think that's a really yeah. interesting uh, dichotomy where we as an industry that helps position and sell other people's products have so thoroughly failed to explain why advertising online is is important. Yes, no, it, it's a great point. And I, I think in it, similar to that point is, you know, like I said, we're a software company that 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 our, our key stakeholder is the developer. So we speak from their perspective when we advocate for the mm -hmm. industry. And ultimately, marketers, developers, they want choice. They want a diverse ecosystem. They want access to lots of different users across geographies and verticals. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of ad networks that are serving a very important purpose in the world for an advertiser. And it's those companies that are also uh, at risk here because they're, they have developed an operations dependent upon IDFA and other identifiers. And if that goes away too quickly, and the world doesn't have enough time to adapt. What's going to happen is um, they won't have the mean, a lot of them won't have the ability to sort of adapt quick enough. And advertisers can shift even more dollars to the largest media companies, Facebook, Google. You know, no one is, is concerned about the lack of engineering, the lack of data that these big tech companies have. And I don't think Apple or anyone else wants a world where there's fewer options and more consolidated power in the advertising industry. And that's also sort of an argument here for if we do this together, if we work in collaboration and we do it over a period of time, you mentioned the web and cookies and ITP. And I, you know, this time horizon is years where 
you know, the, the browser companies are saying, this is what we intend to do. This is the point. Um, you know, to contrast that here, Apple made a decision in June and, and attempted to roll it out in September. Now it's early next year, but we're operating in a much more shortened time frame with similar size implications. So let's talk about that, the swiftness of the decision and maybe why that happened. And I'll play dumb here. It won't be hard. The, does Apple really does Apple really care about the nefarious stuff? Do they want to clean that up and that bothers them? The companies are making a buck off their allowing them kind of into the see their data. Do they sincerely just want to, you know, make the make the world the better place for consumers and have them have their data protected? Is this a nice story to tell the world that they are the privacy company and and all those other tech valley people are really bad about that stuff? What, what do you what do you Anna, we'll start with you? What do you what do you think? Apple's motivation is? Ooh, uh, well, you know, I've, I've been in the tech industry for way too long to be anything other than jaded. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I, I think it's probably a, a mix of all of those. You know, it's hard to look at the uh, economics of the app store and not kind of go, well, are they just trying to juice in app purchases and kind of deprecate advertising because that benefits them? That's where the money is. Economically more. But, you know, they, they are a, a kajillion dollar market cap company. I don't want to say exactly how many. Right. They didn't have to do anything drastic to boost revenue yeah. necessarily now. <laughs> so, so I, I think it's a, it's a mix of, of motivations. I do think that uh, we, we have a system now that's kind of evolved in a very strange way and things like user privacy, whether it's driven by actual consumers or by regulators, like it has been in Europe and increasingly in California, uh, that's in increasingly becoming a thing of concern. And so I, I think Apple's trying to, to skate a in ahead of the puck a little bit here and claim that we're the, the privacy company because as devices become similar to one another, now the iPhone is a great piece of technology, but you still need some extra clicker to buy it as opposed to the Google Pixel and, and similar challenging t technologies. I think they're looking for things that will appeal to a high-end consumer, and increasingly that seems to be around privacy. So I, I can totally understand their strategy, and they can certainly afford to shoot an, an entire ecosystem in the process of going there, which, you know, Brian, to your point about the, the short timeline here, seems to have happened. So I, I think it, it's really a mix of, of several different motivations that are being positioned as, hey, this is good for the consumer, but I'm not hearing very many consumer voices here. And hey, this is what I want from, from this ecosystem. And I think that's a, that's a problem. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a great point. I think, you know, what we can say is that when Apple speaks, they talk about privacy and user experience as core to their uh, agenda. And as I've discussed, I mean, I, you know, I think what this is absolutely in the, in the right direction of, of privacy. Um, but I, I, we believe that trust is not a zero sum game. User privacy and user experience, it's not zero sum. They're not mutually exclusive. You can give consumers education and control of their data and data that's linked to them and uh, allow them to have a, a choice of what that data is worth to a particular brand and what they'll get in that value exchange. And that's what I think is sort of missing here in the way that this is planned to be implemented. I think 
we're not hearing consumer voices because we're not properly educating consumers. And I think we have a responsibility to do so. And, and you know, with choice, if, if Apple's ambition is to put this topic into the uh, hands of consumers, well, we have to educate consumers. With choice comes education. I, w- I want to come right back to that consumer education piece. But I, I wonder, Brian, if you have a th- why, why did Apple back off? Did they not... It, do they not realize how much uproar there would be? Do you think, or I, I wonder if they didn't realize how this would be, they don't want to be seen. They want to be pro uh, consumer, but they don't want to kill small app, app developers. They don't, want to be, they don't want to be a, you know, job killer or something. What, what, do, what do you think made them change their timeline? You know, I, I, I can say that I speak, we speak to a lot of uh, large brands, small brands, developers, marketers, industry experts. And I think um, there was a lot of feedback um, from developers uh, to Apple over the summer around how how much impact this could have um, and and a lot of feedback on the particular implementation of Apple's solution. So they're putting out SK Ad Network, which is the name of their attribution solution for iOS 14. And there are a number of limitations with its current sort of implementation. And, and there's a lot of feedback from technology companies developers sort of representing the consumer interest as well as the business interest. And, you know, when you take a look at the aggregate of that, I think that there's in part a recognition that to affect real change, to really move this forward for consumers, that Apple needs to do this in coordination with their developers and their technology partners. And, and as big and as influential and as powerful Apple is in this ecosystem, um, they need to they, they they need to act and 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 get all these companies to sort of buy into this vision and execute to, together. So I I would imagine this is a primary reason for the delay. By the way, it's amazing. This is the one of the greatest marketing companies on the planet, and they're they make this so indecipherable with IDFA, SKI Network, yes. all these crazy things that no one understands, and and makes it impenetrable. Yes, it's just much of the industry. Um, <clears throat> so let's talk about consumers because I think it's interesting. And I've written this myself in the last six months. I'll say things like, you know, the broader consumer uh, landscape has had this awakening and they are, they've seen these data breaches and they're freaking out about what happened with Facebook and Yahoo data and their credit information being out there. And they're, and they're all, you know, they're, they're broadly, they're more inclined to opt out of stuff and be careful. Yes. And then, but then you'll, I'll, you'll see people just giving Facebook every bit of information under the planet, not thinking about these things at all. So they're, they're, they're kind of funny. Uh, so I guess, do, do we think, how much do we think consumers really care about this stuff? And then I want to get into maybe how we talk to them better. Anna, we'll start with you. But I think this is an incredibly opaque industry uh, and it's not just digital data. I, you know, I, I think uh, while digital data may be immediately obvious that something's gone wrong, uh, offline data, to me at least, uh, both as an individual and, and as somebody working in the industry, is far more uh, challenging, scary, and harder to opt out of. So I think there's a lot of buzz around, ooh, data can be bad, but you, you see it with consumers where there's a very clear exchange in value, like with Facebook. You, you kind of intuitively understand that you know, to look at your cousin's photos of your cousin's baby, you need to put up with a few ads. And that kind of works because that's a model that we as humans have, have understood. 
Uh, and the same goes with Google. You know, you're fine exchanging a lot of information if you're getting Google Maps and navigation for free. And so you're, you're understanding that there's a trade-off there. But in places where you don't see as a consumer that direct trade-off, uh, it's, it's, you're more inclined to be against any type of data sharing. So I think companies that don't mm -hmm. successfully communicate that value exchange are going to be in, in a world of trouble. Uh, and this goes back to my earlier point about how advertising as an industry really hasn't explained what it is that we enable by just existing. <laughs> and uh, I think that, you know, data literacy in general is, is incredibly low. Uh, and if, if I could wave a, a magic wand and at least get every consumer who's, you know, exchanging their email address or their phone number and registering for this, these different services with things that can actually be used to create a fairly comprehensive profile, um, I, I, would, I would love to, to do that and, and wave that magic wand because then we could have more intelligent conversations about it. And right now we have folks acting as privacy advocates who are maybe not necessarily have a full consumer view. So. Another example, and another example that, that brings that to life, um, and it, you know, like you said, the Google Maps and the photo sharing is, there are sensitive data points that we have, like GPS. You know, GPS is a very sensitive data point. You know, my home address is very few apps I want that, you know, to have that information but it's intuitive of what that means mm -hmm. and when i'm presented with a brand or an app um that needs that it's 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 easier for me to understand why take strava for example i, mm -hmm. I like to cycle in order to use strava and their functionality i need to give them my gps and it makes sense and going on a bike ride it needs to know where i am and and you know be in that community uh but there's no such choice around any of the like on idfa mm -hmm. there, there's not a prompt that says here's what that's going to mean it's going to mean an ad free experience for media consumption it's going to be a lower price point because now we have an ability to sort of monetize users there needs to be an ability for us to educate consumers and, and i think i think we're underestimating how much consumers actually do care but if it's not done well i think you know i'll, I'll go to the example of over the last couple of years with gdpr and ccpa there's been a lot of talk about this in the industry but now a lot of consumers, I think, see these pop-ups on mobile websites and they're just, they're just clicking through. It becomes mindless. Yeah, ex exactly. And, and I think we, we missed an opportunity to educate consumers on what this is all about. And I think so the implementation of this stuff is super important. We did, and, and did I do the changes? They're actually suggesting a very similar kind of really annoying pop-up where you know the first thing that you see in the pop-up is this is going to be used to track you and then you as a developer have literally like two and a half lines to actually communicate the value but it's good don't worry yeah, yeah. so you know i i fully expect the opt-in rate if this goes into in, into um uh, into production the way it's planned to be like one percent and that's a that's a really really big hit Okay. So how do you tell consumers that let's assume, I, I don't, you know, or maybe you'll get Apple's cooperation on this and they'll want to do something with the industry, but let's assume you don't. How do you tell consumers about, oh, you know what? Um, deep linking is really important because you want to get the sneaker deal that you described, or you don't want to log into every, every app that you use all the time. It's going to drive you nuts. Like, and you're going to get cool offers and you're paying and you're keeping these guys in business. Like is that is that just a cross industry ad campaign? Is it some kind of um, coordinated communication effort? What how how do you how do you tell that story? 
who wants to jump on that? <laughs> jump on that grenade. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do. I, I think it is. It has to start with some kind of ad awareness campaign. And I don't necessarily mean, you know, a small app developer buys like a TV ad or a Super Bowl ad to go talk to consumers. But uh, we, we I think every participant in the ecosystem needs to really think about where they're bringing value because if I'm, if I'm a telco and I'm spending you know $600 on average to acquire you as a consumer, maybe there's a better way. Maybe I can literally give you 50 bucks to come convert to my, uh, to my service. So we don't have to do this elaborate dance of you know multi-channel advertising, et cetera, if there's a way to, to connect that. And with everybody having mobile phones, you would think that that would be a little bit more possible. And I think it's uh, you know two, two things. One is we have this data ecosystem today that's just kind of mushroomed and needs to be or would benefit from being rethought and um, really kind of reined in is the wrong word because I don't think it's out of control, but it also just doesn't really make sense for the consumer that we have today and the media consumption patterns that we have today. Uh, and, and then on the consumer side, I do think that consumers need to be given some agency over the data that they're generating because right now the ecosystem is is configured in such a way that third-party companies, companies that, that you or I or Brian might not want to have anything to do with, are the ones who are aggregating and monetizing our data. And we are really not seeing a lot of direct benefit from that. Like I would like to opt out of any data collection from any credit bureau, or I would like to stop the DMV from selling my address to marketers, and I can't do that. This is not an option that I, as an American consumer, have right now. And I think that's part of the, the significant part of the problem is, is right there. Yeah, and, and just to add on to that, I think you know uh, regulators and governments have a role here in terms of protecting uh, the rights and, and giving agency to consumers. And, and, and they're, they're quite far behind the technology as we see in, in, in many industries, but I think there's a role to play there. And I think, you know, ultimately Apple and their developers, you know, really the solution I feel lies in, in, in the intersection here, right? Apple has the ability to provide tools for developers to communicate with their, their prospective customers, their existing customers, um, and, and really incentives could be created so that, you know, the most trusted brands win. I think the world's best brands think about user trust so much at such a priority. And, and that's really what we want. We, we want brands we love to have elements of our data to have a better experience. That's what we want. We, what, we, what we don't want is, and is to your point of companies that we don't know about in the background or companies that we don't trust, or we don't want to do business with, mm -hmm. capturing our data and, and, and doing anything you know they want with it. So I think you know there's a real opportunity here um, through the content itself. I think and 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 tools that the operating systems and the developers can can bring to market to help uh, address this. Yeah, and Anna, you kind of hinted at this. There, there has been a lot of talk about well, maybe there'll be a cross industry, um, or, or or like maybe maybe a third party will become the login company where you set up an account of some sort with them and they've, and then you don't, you don't, you don't have to, to um, tell Nike you're, you're who you are and tell your favorite publisher who you are. I just wonder how realistic that is. If it's, if it's not someone like an Apple or an Android, I don't know. 
it, that's that's the the part that I find really amusing here. Uh, conceptually, that's exactly the solution that we should be shooting for. But in reality, that solution is once again, surprise, surprise, going to benefit Apple, Facebook, Google, and the walled gardens that actually have that you know unique login that you're using. So, <laughs> not not to kind of step on another uh, buzzword minefield, but this is one of the few applications of blockchain that would actually kind of make sense. But I have yet to come across somebody who's thinking about it this way, as opposed to focusing on some other stuff that that uh, isn't that applicable to the technology. So I, I think that what in reality users are probably going to have to like pick whatever identity they want to have as their dominant identity for some it'll be the you know apple cloud id for others it'll be facebook and then i think we'll see this wave of companies that we're seeing in e-commerce now like a lot of headless commerce uh, providers of like seamless checkout they just uh, api into hold your actual you know, address, shipping address, credit card information, et cetera. So the merchant doesn't ever need to touch that. You're, that's kind of housed in a, in a safe environment. So I think we're going to start seeing things like that pop up as well for uh, various iterations of identity uh, and really identity as it relates to trust of the company that you're interacting with. Yeah, right. and, and I think, you know, um, just to share with you something that we're doing at AppsFlyer, so less about identity, but more about attribution and measurement. You know, we do believe that the world is headed to more, like I said, aggregate level, less user level data and analytics. And that's going to require a more sophistication in terms of the analytics and more sophistication ways to measure and do attribution. And you know, there's a principle that we are uh, working on in AppsFlyer called differential privacy. And in, in layman's terms, it's the ability to do very accurate uh, analytics of a big data set without compromising any individual's identity. So we don't know, or the output doesn't show who's actually in the data set and who's not. Yet, yet the analysis is very accurate. And the big tech companies employ this principle within their environments already but you know we are first to market to um we're, we're innovating you know first to, to really bring this to market in this arena and i think you're going to see more advancements like this more sophistication um to help protect privacy but still provide transparency to marketers still provide uh, measurement so businesses can grow and 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 the the environment can flourish you know because what we're talking about here is a lot of shifts in you know, uh, identifiers and, and the mechanics are going to shift and they're going to continue to shift, right? We're talking now about a lot of changes that Apple's making. There's a lot of talk about will, will Google follow suit? There's regulation coming. There's things that are happening on the web, right? This will continue to shift. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, as we see it, one of the most important points is the problem is not going away. The, the environment is still super competitive. There's a lot of fraud. There's a lot of money being spent. And brands need third-party independent tools like a measurement company, an attribution company to actually bring that trust in. And so with all this change in dynamic, I, I, I still find it um, really important to center on the fact that um, there are critical stakeholders in this environment that if we work together, you know, the, the, the outcome can be very positive for everyone, consumers, businesses, 
the operating systems, all the stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Brian, we keep talking about, you know, you're, you're a mobile, mobile guy. We, we've been spending a lot of time talking about Apple, but how would you contrast the, what, what's going on in your universe with as much as you can, the, the broader web and what's going to happen with changes there? Do you think you'll still, you'll see it, you know, with Google changing cookies and regulation, will we see a similar push towards more, um, broader data science ways of targeting people with that with like, you know, uh, profiling and lookalike and, and less precision and who people are. We, or are they really different universes that don't play the same way? I, I think, it, you know, in, in one sense, they're operating both together now, right? So to get, you know, a bit technical, you know, when we have IDFA in the environment, it's deterministic and a lot of the operations right now work this way. When we don't, um, in fact, you know, about a quarter of all the iOS users in the U.S. enable limit ad tracking, and we don't have IDFA, and we still have ways using probabilistic modeling to accurately do measurement and attribution there. So these worlds are already coexisting. You know, I think the the how they um, the, the the balance and the shift will change, um, but I do, like I said, I do believe that that we are moving more towards a world of aggregate, um, and there'll be more. Uh, advancements into incrementality and um, predictive analysis and predicting LTVs um, that that really will the, the the market sort of craves these solutions. Anna, let's let's take a a, a sharp left turn here and talk about it. We're, we're getting back to Apple a little bit, but what it's another it's another um, tectonic battle or tectonic shift in power potentially. And when we're talking about their their fight with with Epic and and the for, the whole Fortnite store, I'm living it with my kids now. All of a sudden, can't play their the Marvel stuff on their on my phone, and it's making them cry. How do you what do you what do you take on where this ends up? How does this affect mobile marketing and e-commerce going forward? Oh man, that's a great topic. So we just wrote about it uh, in our uh, weekly strategy newsletter called Sparrow One. So I should probably talk wait, a little wait. bit about what well, let's do. Let's talk, talk about your company. I skipped that in the beginning. Yeah. Tell, tell us about Sparrow. So thank you, everybody, for for uh, sticking with us while we just chit-chat here. Yeah, who is this lady? Okay. <laughs> I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Sparrow Advisors. We're a, a management consultancy that helps people figure out these kinds of tectonic shifts in the space uh, around ad tech, martech, commerce, and adjacent industries. So we work with everyone from brands uh, all the way through um, you know, tech companies and then investors in the space to really provide a lot of context, model out new solutions, and really a kind of a uh, you know, senior executive, extremely experienced team on demand um, type of uh, service. We are global. We have clients in uh, just about every continent minus Antarctica. One day soon, I will conquer the <laughs> too. Not a lot of mobile advertising going on down there. Anyway, so yes, yes, we have this this great newsletter. Go sign up for it. It's awesome. And so when the the epic lawsuit hit, it really exposed this you know really tremendous ecosystem that really only has two players. It's Apple and Google. And Google allows for side loading, so they're kind of you know nudge nudge wink winking their way through this. But Apple doesn't, and they uh, control 100% of the commercial terms of what is now a very very healthy app ecosystem, which, you know, when the App Store launched, maybe it didn't look that healthy. You know, you're, you launch something into the void and you want to make sure you give people an easy on-ramp. 
by taking a, a rev share or a cut of their subsequent commercial uh, efforts. But now that that ecosystem is fully scaled, we have to ask ourselves, is the, you know, the 30% VIG, does that make sense for a marketplace? And what other industries can we see that amount of a VIG uh, for, for actually a marketplace that connects the consumer with a variety of different services? And so I, I think I, I give the, the Epic folks a lot of props. I, I think they've, they've really launched an effort that very few other companies would be able to launch and uh, that a lot of large companies have been kind of privately mumbling in the background for years uh, against the, the App Store terms but didn't have the, 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 the strength to do something about it publicly. And so they're really risking you know, a lot here by potentially being completely excommunicated from the, the Apple Store ecosystem. Uh, but but I, I like the, uh, the, the, the history here where they're positioning themselves as the new Apple and the new Apple of this era. And, and I think that, you know, throughout our conversation today, we've referenced quite a few times this need to transition from like an earlier system to something new. And I think that's exactly what Epic is, is keying into that, hey, for this ecosystem that we have today, we need a very, very different setup. And so, you know, I, I think that it's not terribly realistic to anticipate that we'll see, uh, you know, a large flourishing of other OEMs launching their app stores and, and similar. We're probably stuck with this Apple-Google duopoly here for at least for a while. But, but I think it's, it's a, a really necessary nudge in the direction of rethinking, well, wait a minute, do the commercials of this um, ecosystem actually make sense for everybody and is it equitable? And is there a way to make it more equitable for the next stage of growth? Right. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that Fortnite wins or loses here, but everything we've talked about is the need for more pressure and competition will be good for all the players involved. So this seems like mm -hmm. a good thing. Guys, we have to leave it there. We've, we're running long on time. It's my fault. But thanks so much, Brian and Anna, for an awesome conversation. And uh, enjoy the rest of Disrupt, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A big thanks to my two guests this week, Brian Quinn, President and General Manager at AppsFlyer, and Anna Milicevic, Co-Founder and Principal at Sparrow Advisors, and of course, my partners at AppsFlyer. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate and leave a review. We have lots more to bring you, so be sure to hit the subscribe button. We'll see you next time for more on what's next in marketing.